Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the 24th chapter. I will begin by reading uh, verses 1 through 9, and then we will look at the rest of the chapter as we work through the sermon this morning. Hear now God's Word. Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is is being brought uh, to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you uh, any further, I beg, beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law, but the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself. You may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul is the prime example, but he is certainly not the only example of the cost of gospel transmission. It has a cost, it has cost a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to deliver the gospel to you and to me. And this isn't something that is just a story in an ancient book. These are real people, and this is real blood and sweat. Thousands and thousands have suffered and sacrificed so that you and I could be sitting here today in our comfortable seats hearing about what they laid down their lives for. They could not have imagined us except by extraction and, and, and kind of a, or an abstraction, I should say. Uh, trying to imagine what the future is going to look like or who those people are. They don't, they're not here yet. And they certainly could not have imagined our circumstances. But we must remember that neither, uh, neither were they nor their circumstances an abstraction. These are real people, just like us. If we could go back in time, these are people we would be sitting next to and talking to and knowing their children and interacting with them the way we do here. And, and again, I think when we hear stories from the past, there's a tendency again to kind of almost put it in the fairy tale category and not really recognize these are our ancestors. These are our people. This is real. And so um, I'm, I'm not saying this uh, for the purposes of making us feel bad because we're comfortable and they weren't. Uh, much, if not all, of our comfort is a result of their sacrifices and the advance of the gospel. But as the Lord told Israel in Deuteronomy 24:18, but you shall remember that you were a bondsman or a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. How could you forget that? And yet Israel forgot that often. 
And the whole purpose of the Passover was to remind them of that. The whole purpose of the Lord's table is to remind us of the cost to, to acquire our salvation, to secure our salvation. How often can we come to this table and be ho-hum and bored and have our minds elsewhere and our hearts elsewhere? When we come here, that's what this is about. But as the Lord, uh, see, because the problem is we often do forget where we came from. We forget what it costs to get where we are. And in so doing, we forget the grace of God. The Bible warns in Deuteronomy 8, 18 through 20, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, and that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if by any means you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I, the Lord, will testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. So there's all these warnings in the Bible over and over to God's people not to forget where you came from, not to forget the cost uh, and the price that has been paid to bring us to this place. And so the book of Acts records, remember, the ongoing works of Jesus. That's what the book of Acts, again, often titled the Acts of the Apostles, but really it's the Acts of Jesus through the apostles and through the church, through the body of Christ in the world, And it's just the prologue. It's just the beginning of the story because we're still part of that story. This is an ongoing story, and now it's our turn to be on the stage of this story, of the works of Jesus in the world as we live in his name and are incorporated into him. This is our story, and we're part of that. Now, a little bit of review. Remember, working through the whole book of Acts, here we are now uh, in chapter 24, and Paul has uh, barely, uh, barely escaped with his life from the temple. A, a riot, remember, broke out. They attempted to lynch him. He's arrested by Claudius Lysias. And he appeared before a hostile Sanhedrin, uh, the council of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, where he had to also be rescued again. He's transferred then by 470 Roman soldiers at night uh, because there had been, there were 40 plus men who had conspired and taken an oath that they were going to assassinate Paul uh, in in Jerusalem, and so Lysias gets word of this through Paul's nephew, and he has 470 men transport him to Caesarea, about 60 miles north. He's delivered to the governor Felix, and now Felix is going to give him another trial. And all of what I just described took place in about 12 days. I can't imagine how tired Paul was, not to mention beat up and all of that. Okay, 12 days, less than two weeks, this is what's going on. Consider the scope of all this. This is really a big deal, which means that Paul and the gospel must have clearly been perceived as an enormous threat. This one guy, all of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the Romans, now we're going to Felix. This is a big deal, and they feel very threatened. 
and he is perceived as a threat to the status quo, and one thing we know is the status quo never goes quietly. So chapter 23 ended with Felix saying this to Paul in chapter 23, verse 35. I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So remember, he's, he's, he's claimed, I'm a Roman citizen. He has certain protections. He's now there in Caesarea with Felix. Felix said, we're going to put you, we're going to hold you until your accusers can get here. So he sends word back to Jerusalem for his accusers to come. There's going to be a trial. Uh, so the Sanhedrin acquires their own special prosecutor uh, to bring charges against Paul. They hire the best. His name is Tertullus, and he begins his speech here before Felix uh, by buttering up Felix and telling him what a wonderful and accomplished governor he is and how his wisdom has brought nothing but peace and prosperity to the nation. This is uh, baloney. Uh, And what politician doesn't want to hear this, right? Some things never change. The historian Tacitus said of Felix and his men, quote, everywhere they went, they brought a desert and called it peace. A few years after this, Nero will recall Felix because he was too harsh and replaced him and replaced Felix with Festus. We'll see him in the next chapter. So Tertullus and his clients didn't believe a word of what Tertullus is saying to Felix. This is all just prologue to Felix to set the table so that they can make their case. Nevertheless, he continues with his flattery of Felix, and he says in verse 3, We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. And so then he summarizes his case in verse 4 and 5. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us, for we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So if I can paraphrase what Tertullus is saying, the lawyer here before Felix, uh, most honorable Felix, this won't take long. I'm not going to bore you with all the details. The bottom line is this man is a pestilence and a troublemaker everywhere he goes. And, and by the way, he is a heretic and a cult leader. That's really all you need to know. So I trust that you understand that there are many in our own country that view outspoken Christians as, a pl- as plagues, as extremists, and as troublemakers. As one famous politician put it, we are a basket of deplorables. And he who names wins. So if we can label people as racist, as haters, as white supremacists, then we can easily dispense with them. They're kind of subhuman. We can push them to the side because, after all, they're this. We, we, we give them a label. So Paul has been labeled. He's a pestilence. He's a troublemaker. So this is what Tertullus is trying to do with Paul. And now he says, he even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Tried to profane the temple? Back in chapter 21, verse 28, they said, 
They said, here's what they said. He also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now he's changing the story. He didn't actually do it, but he tried to do it. And so, because they can't prove that he did it, uh, the accusation shifts to an alleged attempt to do so. Uh, so all of the, this is a lie. This is just a total twisting, spinning of the truth. He said they just wanted to put him on trial according to the law. Is that how you remember the story? What happened? He failed to mention that an angry mob attempted to lynch Paul on the spot. There was no trial. And just to add more spin, he said that the commander, Lysias, remember who was next door to the temple when all the the mob breaks out and they're trying to kill Paul and he rushes over with uh, many of his men to rescue Paul out of their hands. What Tertullus says is... um, uh, the commander Lysis came and with great violence took him out of our hands. We were just trying to put him on trial. In other words, Tertullus was bearing false witness against Paul, uh, and the Jews who were present confirmed this false testimony. They agreed. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. N.T. Wright says uh, that we can, quote, assume Luke has drastically shortened it, No professional lawyer would expect to pocket his fee for precisely 50 seconds worth of work. Uh, And he says that's reading the Greek very slowly and ponderously. (laughs) So now we come to Paul's defense. So so the Sanhedrin has hired the best attorney they could find, and Paul has no legal representation. He's going to represent himself. But I want you to remember what Jesus had said to the disciples in Luke 12. Now when they bring you to the synagogues, the magistrates, and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And I have no doubt Paul knew this. So then we take up here again in verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia, remember from Ephesus, found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. In other words, there's no trouble going on around me. There I was just, remember he was in that Nazarite purification Uh, ceremony. He said, that's what I was doing when they showed up. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. In other words, some of the witnesses, the people who claim this happened aren't here. 
those, those Jews from Ephesus. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now, once again, we should presume that Luke is only giving us a summary of Paul's defense. There are some interesting parallels here between the trial of Paul and the trial of Jesus. John Stott comments that the enemies of Jesus had followed the same ploy. In their own court, they had accused him of threatening to destroy the temple and of blaspheming, while before Pilate, they had represented him as being guilty of sedition subverting the nation, opposing taxes to Caesar, and claiming uh, to be himself a king. And now Paul's enemies had laid similar charges against him, namely that he had offended against the law of the Jews, against the temple, and against Caesar. Hatred and hostility toward both Jesus and Paul. So really this debate gets down to who understood the Bible correctly. In effect, this was a heresy trial. Who was the Messiah? Jesus said that if you would follow Moses, these are, you know, this is what Jesus said previously, if you followed Moses, you'd follow me. Because Moses wrote about me. And what's Paul being accused of? You're not following Moses. If you were the children of Abraham, you would rejoice in the same things Abraham rejoiced in, and Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. In Luke chapter 11, 16 through 23, others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven, but he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger one than he comes upon him and overcomes him, He takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. That was the division. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he he of the devil or is he of God? That's still the question, right? We have similar issues today between those who say Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord of glory, and those who want nothing to do with him. We can't both be right. He's either king of kings or he is no king at all. In fact, he would be worse than no king. He would be blasphemous. So if Jesus is the Messiah and someone rejects that, then they are rejecting the only begotten Son of God. In other words, both in this story and in our own story, everything is at stake. The consequences are eternal And so this is why Paul was thought to be a pest and a plague. Again, I say this often, but it has to just be driven into us over and over. Which is it? 
Is the resurrection true? Is Jesus the Son of God? If he is, then how much does that demand of me and you? Everything. If it's not true, what does that mean? That means you can walk away. To what? I don't know. But you can reject that. You can walk away. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Heidelberg 1. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. If that's true, and Paul is asserting that that's true in essence, then everything hinges on that. And so Paul preached Christ to his Jewish kinsmen not because he hated them, but because he loved them and they called it hate. Sound familiar? Romans 9, 1 through 5, I tell the truth in Christ, Paul wrote, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God forever. So Paul's defense was to present himself as both a loyal citizen of Rome and a loyal son of Israel. In the few days that he had actually been in Jerusalem, remember he'd only been in Jerusalem about a week, there wasn't enough time, he said, to create an insurrection. In fact, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was, in fact, in the process of completing his purification ceremony. He had not even spoken publicly in the temple or engaged anyone in an argument, and so his accusers, therefore, could not produce any evidence that he had caused any kind of disturbance. We'll take up our story in verse 22. Then when Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way... He adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now, and, I will, and I, uh, when I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent, him, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, uh, Porcius Festus, succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Felix now is stuck between a rock and a hard place. 
And so he does his tap dance. He stalls. He couldn't convict Paul because Lysias had not found any guilt in him. Neither had the Sanhedrin. In addition, Tertullus had not been able to prove his accusation. In fact, his original accusers from Asia were nowhere to be found, and Roman law demanded that they be present in order to make their accusations. This fact alone should have just resulted in a dismissal of the case. On the other hand, Felix was unwilling to release Paul, partly because he hoped for a bribe, and partly because he wanted to curry favor with the Jews. Remember, his main job was to keep peace. And remember, in nine or ten years, the Jewish-Roman wars are going to erupt. So that's the, the, the social conditions that are present here. It's a, it's a boiling pot of tension. And his job is on the line, and his job is to keep the peace at any cost. So he's placating the Jewish accusers. And so um, Felix procrastinates, and Paul is held uh, waiting for two years, kind of basically under a house arrest. Uh, so uh, while he, he was never left unguarded, he was not allowed uh, to leave, but he could have visitors. And I can assure you that Paul didn't waste his time, nor did Luke, during these two years. Verse 27 tells us why Felix did this. He is, says he was wanting Uh, to do the Jews a favor, and so he left Paul bound. So in other words, this is politics. Felix knew that under the law, Paul was innocent, but he wants to keep the Jews placated. It's hard to imagine politics being used this way, isn't it? Again, not unlike the situation where Pilate found no fault in Jesus, nevertheless he gave in to the public political pressure. I was just reminded, uh, as an old Baptist preacher named Rolf Barnard in the 50s, and he was quite a firebrand uh, preacher, but he was talking about Pilate, and I'm thinking about Felix here too, because remember Paul's presenting the gospel to Felix. He's having multiple visits with him. He's hearing the gospel, but he never comes to receive it. And so in Barnard's sermon, he had a sermon called uh, The Bloodhound of Hell, where he takes us on a journey to hell with Abraham to see um, that hell is both eternal and everlasting. And so they're on this tour, and they're kind of like peering into a room and seeing different scenes. And this was one of them. We see a man running around, rubbing his hands and saying, Somebody help me get it off! Somebody help me get it off! I can't stand the sight of it any longer. And I asked Abraham, who is that? And he said, that's Pontius Pilate. Well, what's he doing? He's trying to get the blood of Jesus off of his hands. Well, I don't see any blood on his hands. And Abraham said, the blood's not on his hands, it's in his memory. He remembers how he called for a basin of water and washed his hands and said, I am free from the blood of this innocent man. He was a moral coward, unwilling to stand up for what he knew was right. He thought he could play innocent and take some water and wash the blood of Jesus from his hands, but it's still on there in his memory. And he's in hell tonight, harassed by the memory of the time he turned the Lord Jesus Christ over to be crucified. And he knew 
he was an innocent man. Justice often dies in the face of political expediency because it seems we're always in our world thinking about the next election. I mentioned last week that Phoenix had three wives. And Drusilla, who is Jewish, is his third wife, and at this point she's probably about 19 years old. So Felix is her second husband. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, who you remember died a terrible death in Acts chapter 12, 23, when people ascribed to him deity. And we read in 12:23, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten with worms and died. So that was, uh, that was her father. And she was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, the one who was responsible for the slaughter of the young boys in Bethlehem at the time of the birth of Jesus. And she was a woman of legendary beauty. So Felix finds her when she's 16 and persuades her to leave her husband and come to him. She and Felix uh, had a son named Agrippa, and in AD 79, Drusilla and her son were buried in the ashes of the eruption of Vesuvius in Pompeii. So Felix and Drusilla send for Paul and ask about the way or the Christian faith about Jesus. And Paul cuts to the chase, and we read, uh, he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. He preaches the bad news before he preaches the good news. And like Samuel confronting King David over his taking Bathsheba from her husband Uriah, when he says, you are the man. Or like John said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Felix was a man who lacked self-control. He too had taken another man's wife and they were both sitting right there as the audience of the Apostle Paul. And then Paul had the audacity to speak to Felix about the final judgment and hell. Hebrews 927, and it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And then suddenly, for Felix, this meeting became an inconvenient time to talk. Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. So Felix will meet with Paul several more times where Paul no doubt presented him again with the gospel because that's what Paul always did There's no indication that Felix ever moved to receive that message. In fact, once again, he tap danced. He procrastinated. He put it off. And this time his procrastination will cost him his soul. So this is is this in Acts now we're at a place where this is an ongoing story. So we're going to stop it here this Sunday. And take it up again next Sunday for the next phase of this series of trials, all of, the, all of which is God also fulfilling his promise to Paul to get him to Rome. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll make a few more comments before the table and uh, ask the Lord's blessing here. Father, we thank you for recording for us these events. 
We thank you for faithful men like the Apostle Paul and many others who have stood firm in the faith in the face of death and torture and imprisonment, all kinds of hardships, who've laid down their lives for Christ and for us so that we might sit here today. May we not be dull of hearing. May these words, may this inspired, recorded story of your people not go in one ear and out the other. May it not fall on stony hearts, but may we be awakened by this living word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians 5:17 through chapter 6 verse 2 says, "Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new." Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, as has, as has <clears throat> committed to us uh, the word, excuse me, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together, so let me just pause there and say, so Paul is saying, what we do is when we go to present the gospel, and what I'm doing today is he's pleading with people, know Christ, receive Christ, turn from your sins, turn to him, receive the, the gift of salvation that's in him and in him alone. We plead with you to do that. We then, as workers together with him, that is with Christ, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's what... Felix was doing. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. J.C. Ryle wrote in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, and he warned this, Do you think that you will have a more convenient time? Felix, uh, Felix did. Do you think you'll have a more convenient time to think about these things? So thought Felix and the Athenians to whom Paul preached, but it never came. The road to hell is paved with such ideas. Better make sure to work while you can. Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Amen. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming into your presence, but not just coming, but coming as your children, welcomed, adopted, bearing the name of Jesus. Lord, take the words today, take the service today, the sacraments, the, the singing, take all of this, Lord, and encourage us as we go out into the world to be light, to be light at our house, to be light in our places of work or school with our friends and with strangers. May they see Jesus in us, and may we show Jesus to them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.